Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. He talks about how the limits of medical technology itself have excluded black African-Americans and persons of color, and sometimes all women. Then University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin talks about some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Ever heard of jumping genes? And how have humans addressed viruses throughout our long history? Professor Shubin answers that and more. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies. I asked him, in this information age, we now have big data. We've got big data analytics. Do we also have big lies? Well, I guess we do. Um, people are getting away with bigger and bigger lies, it seems. And there, I think what I'm mostly interested in is that there's more and more false information than ever before. That um, misinformation and pseudoscience seem to be proliferating like there's no tomorrow. And I think the problem with that is that misinformation is promiscuous. It just ends up in all different kinds of places. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. Don't or touch who, it. <laughs> exactly. And you don't know who it's going to be with next. Exactly. You know, I, I wrote this book as a very practical guide. There's not any theory in there, nothing about what the brain's doing when this goes on. It's just these are the steps to follow if you're above the age of 12 or so. And you want to know how to make sense out of things. It's it's what we would classically call critical thinking uh, that most of us haven't been trained to do. Uh, lawyers, scientists, journalists are trained to do it. But the rest of us are often left at the mercy of people who are really good at spinning a story or taking advantage of us. Elementary school arithmetic. Add up all the percentages on the pie chart. They're supposed to equal 100. Fox News got it wrong in your example. Yeah, they published this pie chart of who was supporting whom in uh, the uh, Romney presidential election. And you look at the numbers, and they add up to way more than 100%. Now, I can imagine how that happened. It might be they asked people in a poll, who do you support? And people were allowed to give more than one name. But then don't make a pie chart. <laughs> There's a problem with averages, isn't there? An average is a distortion of reality because you're taking a whole bunch of data points, anywhere from a few to dozens to millions, and you're trying to summarize them with a single number, right? It, it, you know, that can be useful, but it can also lead to a distortion. I think people need to know. The next time you see an average, ask yourself, um, is it reasonable to take an average of this thing? Or could it be that we're combining apples and oranges or testicles and ovaries in this case, right? I mean, yes, on average, humans have one testicle, but that's that's not really a well-formed way to summarize the human race. In a real sense, even with the simple statistics, one of the things you're asking is, first of all, look at the data. What is the data that they're looking at? And what kinds of things about that data are important to see? 
Exactly. And I, I mean, there, there are some fundamental things you can ask, such as, are we comparing apples and oranges? Is it a, a fair comparison? Especially when we're dealing with averages. Just to take another example, suppose you're a salesperson uh, or you know, you're a real estate agent or you're, um, you're a stockbroker and you hear that there's a room over here. And in that room, the average uh, wealth of people in the room is $5 billion each. Now you're thinking, oh, I got to get in there. But what if the room has <laughs> peeps to sell things to? <laughs> right. What if the room has Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people? Not all homeless people are poor, of course. Again, you don't want to make any assumptions or jump to conclusions. But let's say that this particular group of 19 homeless people have a net worth of zero, and you got Warren Buffett, who knows what his net worth is. The average wealth in that room is very high, but. I'm not sure that's a meaningful summary. You're comparing two different groups. It'd be like telling me the average height of a room full of NBA players and five-year-olds. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. A neuroscientist, musician, and record producer, you might also remember him from one of his earlier books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. He shows us how technology can create systemic racism, both in the medical field and in human clinical trials. Then University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin talks about some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. It turns out our very own DNA is a virus graveyard. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Patrice Machaba. Dr. Machaba, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, uh, Moya. Now, while you are president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation, and thus your current focus is on the United States, Novartis itself is one of the top global pharmaceutical firms. And listeners may know it more by its drugs, such as Cosentix on down, all by their names. Let's start there. Tell us about Novartis. Well, as you say, Novantis is a global pharmaceutical company, um, almost 300 years old, um, and is present in more than 120 different countries and engaged in uh, almost all disease areas and new technologies, including gene therapies, cell therapies, and biologicals. We have a very strong presence in the U.S. People know us for our discovery unit in Boston with close to four or 5,000 scientists, uh, but a really wonderful company. And I've been working for this company now for the last 22 years. 
Now, I know there is a Novartis Foundation, which is a global foundation. And this is what we're talking about today is Novartis U.S. Foundation. How do those two relate? So you're correct. And thanks for bringing that up because people get confused. So the Novartis Global Foundation is based in Switzerland in Basel and actually used to report into me because I used to be the group head of global health reporting into VAS, who's our CEO. And they deal with global health issues outside the U.S. In the U.S., we have the Novartis U.S. Foundation that only deals with healthcare issues in the U.S. So that's the distinction. Now let's get to the challenge at hand. We came to understand during the COVID-19 pandemic, just as new diagnostics and treatments and vaccines were all being developed and emerging, there was what was termed medical distrust on the part of minorities. And today, let's talk about the Black African-American communities. What do we know about their medical distrust and what are its roots? You know, that, that That's a very important question. And, and actually, just to give you some background, a personal background, that's why I actually asked my CEO to be transferred to the Novartis U.S. Foundation during COVID. Because we understood that the trust issue was deep, that it was centuries in the making, started off with slavery and discrimination and a lack of integration of the African-American community, almost in every facet of life, education and so on. And everybody knows about the Tuskegee experiments done by the government on African-Americans. Everybody knows about the use of Henrietta Lacks cells. Uh, and so the, the, the trust or the mistrust is deep. And we saw that immediately during COVID uh, in terms of mistrust to participate in clinical trials, mistrust to utilize the vaccine. And we'll talk about this later. We at Novartis really felt that just a response with a PR tactic without a deep engagement with the community to understand their mistrust and how we can break that mistrust. Uh, it was important that we do that before we come up with a program. So many people think this is about if you just have the drugs, we have to get over that mistrust so they'll walk up and take them. There's a lot more to this in the sense that we have to develop the drugs that include them. As a woman, I was always amazed that for many years, women of any background of childbearing age were excluded from clinical trials. And so when we received a drug, doctors would have to make an imaginative leap to say, prescribe it for women. Well, perhaps they weigh less. You know, it turns out we're all different <laughs> and we are all different. We're all humans. So this is no longer the case for women and minorities. It's law. And yet people of all ages, um, you know, are required to be included in clinical trials. But how inclusive can they be? Clinical trial subjects are volunteers. Are we seeing minorities and specifically Black and African-American communities in clinical trials? Not enough. Uh, that's the lesson we learned because of this mistrust. I want to go back to, you touched on the issue of women of all races in clinical trials. Even today, because of the exclusion criteria that we put there, because of the fear and the experience of thalidomide, 
a lot of the clinical protocols will exclude women from the clinical protocol. So if so, when we looked at the current databases of trials that go to the FDA, there's still a deficit in terms of the number of women that should be participating in those clinical trials based on the disease and the disease burden. Now, specifically when it comes to African-Americans, because of the trust issue, the numbers are appalling. Uh, if you don't have trust within the community, they don't participate in the clinical trials. But you have to go backwards and say, how, how can you then persuade patients from the African-American community to participate in clinical trials when you don't have enough investigators or doctors or nurses who come from that community uh, to participate in the clinical trials? And, and that's why we, uh, in the beacon of hope that we'll talk about, we come up with a comprehensive plan to try and increase the number of investigators that come from that community, male, female, across all the races, yes. And the science is simple. If you don't include all of these people, we won't know how well or if the drug works for them. That is so correct. So it's not only whether the drug will work for them, but it's also could the drug be harming them? Right, so it's the both sides, the benefit risk issue that's important, and 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 it is so important that we in the U.S. here uh, lead in this area. And why I say that is that because we are probably the most multiracial, multi-ethnic country within single individuals. <laughs> yes, if we do this well, we can provide data for other patients around the world. A lot of other patients and doctors and associations in different countries look to the U.S. to say if that data is coming out of the U.S. or American medical societies, it must be correct. So we have a great opportunity to, to do it well. I also think that when we take the data for these clinical studies and we take data for prescribing medications or, or finding out the health of an individual, I was surprised that some of the technology uh, is not appropriate for people of color. Well, you know, again, you know, I, I guess COVID was a was a, a wake up call, a turning point. We discovered, as you know, during COVID, that the pulse oximeters, for example, that you clip onto your finger, that measures how much oxygen you have in your lungs, what we call oxygen sat saturation was overestimating the oxygen saturation of black and brown patients. So you can think about this more, right? That it may have happened that a black or brown patient, male or female, had COVID, went to casualty, somebody applied this pulse oximeter and said, no, your oxygen levels are fine. And therefore were denied oxygenation or were denied hospitalization or were denied ventilation. And, and when we started asking, how, how could that be? It was a simple answer. And you're an engineer, right? When the pulse oximeters were developed, they didn't include enough black or brown patients to calibrate their data. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And we should, and we should 
discuss this because I think this is one of the greatest findings and opportunities we've learned. Our diagnostics, let alone our clinical trials, a lot of the diagnostics that we use in medicine have not been calibrated with all the different races and you know wonderful tones that we have of people in the in the US. I started with the pulse oximeter one and then so when this discussion started and we also started engaging with the medical community and the historically black medical schools fortunately the New England Journal of Medicine which is the number one journal in the world then did a quick review and essentially said, hey, wait a minute, it's not just the pulse oximeters. There are probably about 13 other disease areas where we use race for the diagnosis, for the treatment, for the algorithms, to the detriment of either females or black and brown patients. So, for example, when we want to measure how whether your lungs are working well or not. We call that a lung spirometer. You blow into it and it gives you a measurement. The spirometers automatically take 5% of your function if you're Hispanic away from the number. If you're African-American, it takes 10 to 15%. So what does that mean for an individual? You have to lose more lung before lung function, before, before this parameter says, hey, you've got a problem with your lungs. And then when we ask, where does that come from? It comes from an old age theory that the lungs of African slaves are smaller and therefore subhuman compared to the lungs of Caucasians. And that has been integrated into the medical care. I, I'm, I'm a practicing obstetrician myself. I'll give you another example. Uh, there's a scoring from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology called Vaginal Delivery After Caesarean Section, the VBAC score. In other words, once you've had a caesarean section, depending on your race, there's a score that says what's the risk of you either rupturing your uterus or failing in the caesarean section. When you add African-American into the score for a woman who's had a caesarean section, the chances of her getting a repeat caesarean section without even trying for a normal delivery are almost 60-70% higher. So population-wise, you end up with a population that's getting more caesarean sections, the risk of bleeding in theater, the risk of anesthetics, the risk of infection, and no wonder why part of the reason the maternal mortality rate of African-American women is three times higher than Caucasian women. So the New England Journal went through a whole list of where we have assumed that race is the differentiator. In other words, it's a biological difference, uh, whereas, in fact, it's a social difference. So part of what we have to do is to deconstruct that so that the practice of healthcare for everybody in the U.S. and around the world, by the way, as we discussed, uh, is based on proper evidence. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Patrice Machaba, formerly the Novartis Group Head of Global Health and Corporate Responsibility. He's now focused on the United States 
as president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. Now, I know that the Novartis U.S. Foundation has a four-pronged approach. Let's go there. So, uh, and, and, and thanks for bringing that up, um, because I think what we have done here is unique. Um, my experience on the global health side is that if you build programs that improve the health care of people, programs that are transparent and that are open to all parties or people, NGOs, company that share the same values, uh, those programs succeed. So when George Floyd was murdered and then we had COVID and we saw the difference in hospitalization and deaths amongst African-Americans and Hispanics, we decided to consult first with the African-American communities, with the National Medical Association, with the four historically black medical schools, that's Morehouse, Howard, Meharry, Charles Drew, Pro Professor Valerie Montgomery Rice from Morehouse Medical School was, was a key partner in advising us. We joined hands with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund and, say, and we asked the fundamental question, what can we do to fundamentally change the trajectory uh, that each time we have a pandemic or each time we have a recession, it is black and brown and females who suffer the most uh, when it comes to... <clears throat> Uh, hospitalization and deaths. And, and the insights, they were obvious. There's a lack of STEM education up to K-12. When the kids go to university, college fees are expensive, so they end up not studying nursing, pharmacy, or medicine. They drop out. The four historically black medical schools don't have the same level of endowments that some of our other Ivy League universities have. Therefore, they can't build centers of excellence for clinical trials or attract the best talent to stay and say, hey, if you love science, if you love engineering, if you love math, it's actually a good career that's well-paying. So most of them end up graduating and going back to the community, finding a job to uplift the rest of their family. So a really good insight. And then other insights we learned were that it's not just about the medicine. It is a lack of trust. So we discussed the Tuskegee issue. We discussed the Henrietta Lacks issue. So that became important. And, and that's why we then uh, said, okay, uh, after four months of discussion, it was really interesting because we did this during COVID um, <laughs> via Zoom. Uh, uh, started in February last year. Uh, and after four months, we came to an agreement. And I, I want to emphasize this, Moira. It, it took four months simply because they wanted to know whether they could trust us or not. <laughs> Even they didn't trust you. <laughs> yes. We had to earn their trust that we get it. And that's why the program is called The Beacon of Hope. And that's why it's 10 years, because putting a three-year program or a PR for one year with a bit of money would not change centuries of what has created this. And that's why it includes scholarships, internships, mentorships, and creating four centers of excellence for clinical trials at the four historically black medical schools. So we provided them with funding for the professor, the research fellow, and three other headcount for 10 years. So they can do trials, not only for Novartis, 
for, for any other company that they think is important. And then one of the unique things we proposed just to show to them uh, that we get it. Via Thurgood Marshall, we created 10 research grants for non-medical faculty that can research on any topic that they think contributes to health inequity. It could be food deserts. It could be a lack of 5G. It could be all sorts of things, environmental issues, water, well, we've seen Flint and so on. And so we expect, and so we expect at least 100 research papers over 10 years. We're going to take those findings. We've already had discussion with Billy Mitchell from the National Black Caucus of State Legislators and Hispanic to say you can take all those findings. If it can impact policy and law, you can then integrate that into policy and law and change and then, uh, and, then, and then ask for the funding and then hopefully impact population health and individual health. So qu quite a unique uh, partnership. And then finally, of course, we said, this is not about Novartis, by the way. This is about impacting the community in a fundamental way. And we said, we will then open it up to any company, medical, pharmaceutical or not, competitors, that shares the same values. Uh, and as you know, wonderful partners of ours, Merck and Sanofi have joined and have also agreed to do clinical trials in the four centers for the next 10 years. That's why we think this is fundamental and it's a beacon of hope. Now, I know that Novartis has committed $50 million. Are these other partners bringing in funds as well? So... <clears throat> And, and thanks for pointing that out. The $50 million is from the foundation. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's from the foundation, Novartis Foundation, which is good. The real investment, which is larger, are the internship programs, the capacity development. So, for example, our discovery unit in Boston, called Nibber, has just ha had the first cohort of 18 very bright kids doing a summer internship fully paid for for three months, teaching them drug discovery, translational medicine, gene therapy, and so on. And we're going to do that for the next 10 years with an idea of training at least 200 to 250 new scientists. We're going to do that in different parts of the organization. Via Thurgood Marshall, we've already started planning over a 10-year period to mentor at least 1,200 students, postgraduates, in all fields, so that we can show them that you can love science, you can join engineering, science, and pharmaceuticals, etc. So that's the being done by the Novartis U.S. Corporation, and that's the biggest investment. But there's no financial, there's no financial value, there's no financial value you can ever put to human capital development. It changes generations. Because they, their careers will never be the same and their children's careers will never be the same. Uh, the other companies um, are now going to be doing clinical trials with their full support and portfolio for the next 10 years in the four historically black medical school. 
I'm speaking with Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. We'll talk more after a break. Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin talks about some assembly required decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. There's no financial value you can ever put to human capital development. It changes generations because their careers will never be the same and their children's careers will never be the same. That is the greatest investment, inclusion, developing trust, uh, creating new specialists and care wells, male and female, and so on. Uh, and, and we have another uh, four or five uh, comp- companies that we're in discussion with who now want to join the same thing. Now, many people are a little confused about how there can be systemic bias. Uh, and you talked about some of this in your examples. I'd like to know how your insights have changed looking back and looking to where we are today uh, at different from the beginning of the four months of talking with everyone from uh, HBCUs and Thurgood Marshall to, to now, how has your perspective changed? What have you learned? That, that's probably the most important question. Um, I have learned uh, in, in my experience during uh, 22 years in global health around the world that if you're honest and are ready to tackle difficult problems, there's always a gift at the end. And, and, and the gift I'm talking about here is that uh, 
you know, the realization that not enough women or black or brown patients are participating in trials, that there are not enough investigators, that's obvious. And that will solve. And we have partners in Merck and Sanofi and other partners who are going to help us do that. We'll solve that, okay? That, that's, a, that's a numbers game. But what I learned, and a lot of us have now learned, is that over the last two to 300 years, we have racialized medicine in the USA. So we talked about the pulse oximeters. We talked about the lung function test. I can tell you it's the same thing with the American heart, get with the guidelines. So, for example, if an African-American has heart failure versus a, a white American patient, there's, there's a risk score that says the African-American patient will do better and what does that mean? Uh, what that means is that if you have a young doctor or a nurse who's looking after an ICU and they only have one ventilator and, and two patients come, one African-American, one Caucasian-American, that score would direct that doctor to give the ventilator to the white patient. The, the, um, the, the cancer societies say African-American women uh, have a less prevalence for breast cancer. Therefore, the screening of African-American women for breast cancer is less. But we know for a fact that the diagnosis of breast cancer happens earlier in African-American women at a later stage because they were not screened. And when it comes to something called triple negative or, or the most devastating forms of breast cancer, it's, it is higher in African-American women. And, and that, that, to me, that realization that we've assumed these biological differences or causes, as opposed to saying, these are social constructs, that to me has been a learning. And uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we have created a center of excellence at Morehouse, and they're working with other universities because this is everybody's responsible, responsibility including the American Medical Association and all the associations to go back and relook wherever we include sex and race in terms of diagnosis, prognosis and, and algorithms, treatment, we need to review that. I can, I, can, I can think of just a few genetic solid diseases that impact, right? Sickle cell, everybody knows it, right? predominantly African-American. There's one kidney condition, uh, uh, LA one that drives kidney disease in African-Americans. The rest are all biological, are all social constructs. So just, just to, give you, you know, to give you a specific example, we talked about heart failure. Um, it could be that the African-American patient doesn't have access to a primary care doctor doesn't have access to fresh food, organic food, uh, doesn't have access to a community where they can go and exercise and jog because of crime. And therefore they come in with more morbidities or more sickness with a heart failure. So redoing that, I think is going to be the greatest gift to uh, all patients in the U.S. and globally. Now, how we do science is uh, is a human activity, and therefore we get biases uh, in it, no matter who does it, how they do it. Uh, 
But I think anyone would be mistaken if they thought that these activities only benefit black African-Americans and people of color, because in science, science helps you, if we talk about the information that comes out of it, it it understands and appreciates the complexity of biology, the complexity of humanity. And as we say on Technation, what we learn about one of us, we learn about all of us. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's the beauty of this discussion, right? Because all of a sudden now we're beginning to say to ourselves, our construct of race is meaningless, right? How do we get better to understand the true construct of race? And the only way to do that is to sequence people's genomes, equivalently. Uh, you know, I was outside the country giving a talk last week and um, only to realize uh, that the percentage of the human genomes that have been sequenced that are of African origin or African ancestry, in other words, African-Americans and so on, is only 2.5%. Whereas the greatest genetic variation is within the African genome itself. So if you're trying to find causes for certain diseases in Japanese or Caucasians, etc., you're better off screening the African genome because you have higher heat and greater var variability. If you want to find treatments uh, for diseases that sometimes impact a different race from African-Americans or Africans, you're better off screening that enriched population. So this is why something that started with COVID, not enough participation, a simple discussion of patients and investigators has now for us, at least for me and the Beacon of Hope and our colleagues gone to, oh, there's a greater opportunity here to benefit everybody if we do the right things. Dr. Machaba, uh, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I, I, my thanks is to you, uh, Moira, and uh, it's a pleasure. Please, uh, please uh, hold us accountable. Uh, and and uh, it will be our pleasure to come back and uh, discuss on a yearly basis the progress we're making. My guest today is Dr. Patrice Machaba. He is the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. You might remember University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin from his earlier books, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. His most recent book is Some Assembly Required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Well, Neil, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. During your career, of course, there's been the incredible scientific discovery of DNA, DNA tools, DNA analytics. How did the discovery of DNA and the ability to work with it change how you did your science? Yeah, it was quite amazing. And it happened, it happened kind of early on. I was in graduate school and I was training to become a paleontologist. And I was training to really study the history of life, in particular, great changes, great transformations in the history of life. And so I was learning all these techniques about how to lead expeditions, how to find fossils, you know, how to find fossil intermediates, say, between creatures that live in water and those that walk on land, you know, all that kind of thing. And I remember coming back, from, this is in like the mid, late 1980s. I remember coming back from one of my early expeditions as a student, 
uh, and somebody had piled some molecular biology papers on my um, desk. <laughs> and these papers were showing that people had found DNA that helps build the body of flies, which doesn't sound like much. But then in other papers, they revealed that human bodies, fish bodies, reptile bodies all have versions of these same things too. And what they're doing is help build their bodies. So it's sort of at that moment, I guess it's like 1987, 1988, that I realized the power of molecular biology. And it's just been that way ever since for the entire field, not just me. I mean, it's just like these techniques have gotten so powerful, so cheap. So, so we're so able to apply them to different kinds of species that it changes the kinds of questions you can ask as an evolutionary biologist. So my toolkit, as well as a lot of other paleontologists of my generation, um, now extends from geology and cracking rocks to studying cells and DNA and how DNA is uh, controlled during development from egg to adult. You're looking at the entire record of what is living from one point to one point to one point. And you have to make a leap from this point to that point. You always don't have the information in between. What are some of the incorrect leaps that have been made over time? Well, we have, you know, information's all imperfect, you know, whether you're dealing with the present or in the past. And so the question is, how do you build robust hypotheses of how creatures are related to one another and how creatures have changed over time? And there have been all kinds of misleading things and dead ends and so forth. Some of the biggest ones were in trying to reconstruct the tree of life to try to understand, you know, which species are more closely to which others, you know, the family tree. Um, some of the earliest efforts were actually um, really flawed in many ways because they only relied on one set of data. They might have only relied on fossils or only relied on anatomy, you know, and now that we have the DNA record that gives us some, you know, and, and that there's, you know, billions of bases in DNA in every, in most creatures, you know, that's a huge library of evolutionary change that we can now leverage to ask those questions. So certainly there've been a lot of missteps and, these are missteps not only because, you know, we were lacking data in the past, but also because the analytic methods didn't really exist to integrate different lines of data. You know, so the, our progress with understanding DNA has gone hand in hand with our progress in the computational methods to study DNA and to compare it among different creatures. You know, so it didn't happen in a vacuum. When you think of the computational power we have now, the sequencing power we have now, the experimental power to manipulate DNA or to move genes among species to test their function, you know, you put all that together and all of a sudden you have this great constellation of approaches that can tell us about the history of life. So there are many false steps as you develop new technologies. That's to be expected, you know. Well, I like how you say that the information is never perfect. You can't, <laughs> it's like there's always more, there's more. And so you still have to make leaps. And you write, we tend to fill the gaps in our knowledge with our own biases, usually some combination of hope, expectation, or fear. Fear? Well, you think about it. What's the unknown to a lot of us? The unknown can be scary. The unknown can be compelling. But, you know, when you think about science, science is a leap into the unknown, right? I don't want to over-dramatize it, but that's what it is. You're going where people haven't been before if you're doing it right. And that's going to be loaded with that unknown. You're going to paint with your preconceived expectations because you're human. <laughs> you know, you're going to have your biases or I'm going to have my biases. I'm going to have, you know, all sorts of expectations that are based on what I've experienced before. But that may not apply to this new unknown. We encounter this a lot, particularly in the age of social media, where social media is just one giant confirmation bias engine. You know, we have to overcome 
our confirmation bias and our very human you know, biases, which actually service very well in a lot of contexts. It's just they cause us to mis- misfunction in a lot of others. Another quote I love is from uh, Lillian Hellman, the um, uh, nothing starts. What does that quote say? Tell us again. Yeah. So Lillian Hellman, I was just finishing my, my new book, Some Assembly Required, and I was reading an autobiography just randomly of Lillian Hellman, who was a great playwright, right? But she was also, you know, brought up to the House of American uh, Activities Committee. She was a very famous uh, communist. And she had this line in looking at her own life, very hard living life um, woman. Um, she said, nothing, of course, ever begins when you think it does. And I remember reading that quote thinking, wow, that's just not the story of Lillian Hellman's life. That's a story of evolution in the last 4 billion years, you know, because really nothing ever begins when you think it does in evolution. I mean, if you think that, you know, in evolution that lungs arose, you know, as creatures evolved to walk on land or, or feathers arose uh, as creatures evolved to fly, you'd be in really good company. Uh, but you would be entirely wrong. And we've known that <laughs> for over a century. <laughs> Nothing, I mean, the great inventions in the history of life always precede the revolutions they're associated with. They came about earlier in different contexts. And they really, so much of evolution is repurposing structures that already exist, finding new functions for them. Lungs arose in fish as they lived in water to help them breathe air when the oxygen supply in water um, dropped. Feathers arose in dinosaurs as thermoregulation and, and courtship displays, and then later were used in flight as creatures took to the air. Now, that's the story of invention after invention, whether it's anatomy or genes or, you know, you name it. It's, it's sort of writ large. And this is part of what we're talking about with the famous paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, um, the 2% of a wing problem. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, you think about it this way. Um, you know, one of Darwin's biggest critics after Darwin published The Origin of Species was this guy, Mavart. And he was really remarkable. He managed to piss everybody off. Um, he, um, <laughs> at the time, he just went after everybody. He went after his parents. He went after authority. He just, just hated authority. He went after the Catholic Church, by the way. He went after everybody. And so, um, but he had a really cogent criticism of Darwin. And that was, look, if you think that, you know, uh, flight arose from land living creatures or uh, or that land living creatures evolved from fish, so many things have to change in sync that it's impossible. No, moreover, that what good is half of a feature, say half of a wing or 2% of a wing? Uh, why, you know, how would it ever evolve? Because the intermediate stages would be useless. And that was a really cogent criticism of Darwin. And Darwin took that very seriously. So, so Darwin wrote his first edition of um, Origin of Species. Uh, but in his sixth, he actually addressed Mavart. And he did it in a way that Stephen Jay Gould later described as the 2% of a wing problem. You know, what good is 2% of the wing? And the way he answered it was two ways. First was that 2% of a wing is better for some functions than 1% of a wing or 0.5% of a wing. It may not be for flight. It may be for, you know, uh, jumping and staying in the air and longer jumps and whatever. But the other was that much of evolution happens by changing the function of features that already exist. That is, that the first creatures to walk on land evolved from fish that already had many of those features that allowed them to walk on land as fish, <laughs> you know, so lungs and, and as we later, my team later showed, arms and fingers and toes and these sorts of things originally arose in fish living in aquatic ecosystems, living in swampy environments, such that when the shift came to walk on land, it didn't really involve too many new structures. It involved using old structures in new ways. 
you know, using the old to make the new, repurposing, you know, which is what every, you know, which what we do in, in life when we tinker. And that's how um, evolution acts. And this is sort of like Darwin's response to Mavart. And as that was summarized as your question revealed by, by Steve, Steve Gould, um, you know, a century and a half later. Now, one would think that becoming a scientist is very prescriptive. You know, do well in science in high school, you know, science fairs in middle school, take it as a major in college, find yourself a nice university, do your Ph.D. work, and then maybe a postdoc and perhaps a, a professorship. It's all very well laid out. And then there's your colleague, Vinnie Lynch. Tell us about Vinnie Lynch. Well, Vinnie is sort of an impressive uh, human. So Vinnie, you know, was a an undistinguished, to put it mildly, student uh, for uh, as as a child, um, and he struggled in school. And like so many of us, myself included, Vinnie uh, was fortunate to have a, a wonderful teacher who saw what made him click, and he saw that what Vinnie really needed was to focus not on the books in the classroom, but to focus on nature, where his passions really truly were. And what happened is that focus of that teacher in elementary school really kindled his interest in natural history uh, and later in evolution. And then Vinnie trained to be a molecular biologist to study evolution, and he carried that passion with him ever since. So he's a, he's a molecular biologist studying DNA and proteins and to some extent cells, um, but he is, at first and foremost, that grown child who loved animals and plants and natural history. And it was really due to a teacher that stimulated that interest, you know. And that, that just really speaks to the importance of great teaching, by the way. Let's talk about jumping genes. Yeah. So one of the great discoveries uh, in, you know, the past, you know, 75 years about DNA is that it's not just a static, you know, double helix that we read about, what happens is it's roiling with change. That is, there are some pieces of DNA that make copies of themselves and land in other spots of the genome. They're called jumping genes. And there are different ways that it can happen. There are different kinds, different flavors of them. They were, these were um, initially discovered by Barbara McClintock, who wrote a paper decades ago uh, describing these that was so ahead of its time that nobody understood it. And it got no mention, basically, until people started to discover jumping genes in other species. She was working on corn, and they discovered them in mice, and they found that it's, this is just a very profound part of the genome. She eventually ended up winning the Nobel Prize. But to back to the story about Vinny and the stromal cells, Vinny interested, was interested in the origin of pregnancy. That is, if you think about what makes mammals different from, say, reptiles, most reptiles, some have this, it's pregnancy. That is, we don't, you know, we don't hatch from eggs you know, uh, uh, in nests, uh, we are carried in the womb and there's pregnancy where the, the fetus, uh, lives with uh, inside the mother feeding and getting immune system and so forth from the, from the mother. Well, do you think about the origin of that? The origin of pregnancy, if you were back to the problem, the 2% of a wing problem or the Mavart problem with uh, Darwin, so many genes are involved in the origin of pregnancy that if you think about that, how many mutations would it take to, for, the, for pregnancy to evolve? It never would happen. You'd need thousands of cha genetic changes to bring about this change. Well, what Vinny showed is in looking at these cells, he found that a lot of the genetic elements that are turned on during certain phases of pregnancy are actually tethered to jumping genes. So that it didn't take 
thousands of mutations for the origin of, of pregnancy. What Vinny hypothesized was that it maybe was a small handful of them that happened near jumping genes. And then the jumping genes transported these mutations all over the DNA of, our, of our, one of our reptilian ancestors. So that jumping genes are a way to bring new types of information across the genome. So that one or a small number of mutations can actually be amplified into hundreds, if not thousands, by the action of these jumping genes over time. And so that's, that's really profound stuff because what it's showing is that, you know, evolutionary can change can happen very rapidly in some cases, but importantly, we have to change our conception of DNA. It's not this static molecule. It's always opening and closing. Ports of it are jumping around and duplicating. It's roiling with change. And that the way it roils with change actually is a big part of, you know, the origin of new things in evolution. That's the sort of a factory for evolutionary change. Now let's add viruses. Let's. Now, so in this last year and a half, we've been adding viruses. It's been quite the viral year in a lot of ways. And we're so used to thinking about things like SARS, COVID-2, you know, uh, COVID-19, the, the, the virus that causes um, COVID-19. You know, we're so used to thinking viruses in a very negative way. I'm going to offer a slightly different perspective. And that's based on one of my colleagues at the University of Utah, Jason Shepard. So the viruses, you know, viruses uh, have a lot of abilities here, and some ty some types of viruses, not all, but some types, can actually enter the genome. SARS-CoV-2 does not enter the genome. This is a different kind of virus, RNA virus. But some of these viruses actually can enter the genome. And so it's a funny story, but it's it's one that speaks to how science happens. Jason's a neurobiologist. He doesn't study viruses. Uh, so Jason's interested in memory, right? So he was studying memory, and he was studying a a gene and a protein that are involved in memory in mice. It's called ARC, A-R-C. And he was doing what any good you know, molecular biologist does. He isolated the gene and the protein, studied the protein, how it works in the brain and so forth. And so he was looking at ARC protein under the microscope and he like, had to do a double take on it. It, it. it was like, it formed these little capsules, microscopic capsules, right? And so he's like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And he pulled out a microbiology textbook, and he couldn't tell the difference between the little capsules of the ARC protein he saw under his microscope and uh, the capsules formed by uh, HIV, uh, the virus that causes AIDS. He's like, wait a minute. So he uh, works in a medical school, so he invited some of his virology colleagues over to look under his microscope a couple weeks later, and particularly colleagues who work on HIV. And he said, hey, what's, uh, what, what are you looking at under the microscope? And they said, well, that's HIV. I know that. Anybody knows that. It causes AIDS, right? And he's like, nope, sorry, ARC. It's a memory gene in mice. And like, what? So they analyzed it in more detail, and it turns out that ARC, the protein made by this gene, um, has elements in it that are viral, that have the signature of a certain type of virus, retrovirus. And they traced ARC uh, distribution in animals, and they came up with a hypothesis that is sometime in the very distant past, probably about 360 million years ago, based on the comparison they did, there was a virus that entered the body of one of our distant ancestors. It's entered the DNA, and then was commandeered. Instead of causing infections by some mechanism unknown, it was what we call domesticated, and that instead of you know, causing disease, it was engineered for a new function, put to good uses, if you will, domesticated, right? 
Um, And it turns out that this sort of viral entry for new inventions in the genome is not just in ARC. It's in other proteins like placental proteins. There's one called secession. Um, There are others as well. In fact, the list is growing. So it does appear our relationship with viruses is um, very complex. That is, you know, and, 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 you know, we're always at war with them, right? They're, you know, they're trying to get into the body and they basically have one function they, to make more copies of themselves and to turn us into viral factories. Every now and then we win the battle <laughs> and turn one of those uh, <laughs> kinds of uh, particular kinds of viruses into something useful, in this case, ARC or syncytion or these other proteins. So you're not actually just your parents' DNA. You're also their parents behind them. And then all of these commandeered uh, viral invaders over millennia. That's right. And if you look at our genome, it's like like 9% of it is old viruses that that attacked and got either domesticated or some of them were knocked out as the signature. So our DNA is actually a viral graveyard in many ways, if you, when you look at it. And in fact, most of our DNA is not our genes, right? If you define gene as a section of DNA that codes for proteins, I think that's only 2% of the DNA. The rest of it are some of these jumping genes, they're repetitive sequences, they're even fossilized, if you will, um, uh, viruses uh, sitting in the DNA. We have to talk about Vinny's tattoos. You gotta give them that. <laughs> Vinny's tattoos. Vinny's tattoos are, you know, I used to see him at the gym all the time, and it's, you know, it's basically all the animals I've loved before. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, Vinny's tattoos are a record of his work, um, which is a beautiful thing. So many, actually, so many of my colleagues have that. I used to have a graduate student who, every species he'd worked on, he'd, uh, he'd get a new tattoo of that species. And, um, and I get, you know, we've discovered this, one of the earliest creatures to walk on land, a fossil known as Tiktaalik rosea. Oh, barely a month goes by where I don't get a, um, somebody emailing me or zapping me on social media with a Tiktaalik tattoo. So go science, go tattoos, go science tattoos. You can't tell a scientist by how they look. They <laughs> just right. turn out to be. <laughs> Neil, always a pleasure. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. And, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with University of Chicago professor Neil Shubin. His book is Some Assembly Required, Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. It's published by Vintage and available in all media formats. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Anne Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.